0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we really come to a, a landmark passage. I, I took the last couple of weeks just to do a little breakout on spiritual gifts. It said in Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given to each of us. And, uh, and it, it doesn't list the spiritual gifts as it does in other portions of Scripture, it does list gifts in chapter 4, where it says in verse 11 that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And that's where we find ourselves this morning on Ephesians four eleven and 12. I mean, the saying goes, and maybe you could finish this sentence, that Everything in all of our world, whether it's government or health services or business or the home or the church, all falls and rises with what? Leadership. Leadership is crucial. I mean, all of it, no matter what we're doing, whether it's an athletic team or business or government or politics, leadership is the core principle. And there is great confusion today, um, not from the Word of God, but great confusion today on what a pastor does, or I could say what an elder does. Some years back, there was an article in Christianity today, and they did a survey of about 800 uh, laypeople and pastors and professors as to what they believed were the top five priorities in pastoral training. And I thought that the results were staggering. I think this is going to come up, and I wanted to show you, we don't need to take long at this graph. I hope it's not too small so that you can see that. Move that to the next slide, you guys. There it is. Here's what, you got the lay people, what the top five priorities are for a pastor. You've got the pastor's priorities, what he thinks, and then the professor's priorities. And so there they go. Obviously, the lay priorities in the area of pastoral training thinks that spirituality is the most important Role for a pastor, an elder, certainly that's important. And then going down that first column, relational skills are second. The third thing would be character, would be true. Fourth, communication skills. And then at least the way that lay priorities would think of a pastor, they'd put theological knowledge last. When you consider the second uh, people that they surveyed, a pastor's priorities from a pastor's, that relational skills were the most important thing, which is interesting. Secondly, of his own priorities, the way he sees it, should be his management abilities. That's interesting. Thirdly, his communication skills. Fourthly, they, he put uh, spirituality in fifth. Again, at the bottom, theological knowledge. Of course, the professor looks at things a little different, does he not? Here, theological knowledge is at the top, the first priority, leading to character. Uh, Leadership skills come down a little bit. Communication skills aren't quite as important. And then the last one is what we just committed Friday and Saturday to, would be counseling skills. And I thought that was very interesting, at least under the lay and the pastor's priority, that theological knowledge is last, last. Uh, Certainly, it's not the only thing, because knowledge can puff up, and you know that, and I know that. But to place that last in a list of priorities is staggering. And I want to begin by saying that pastors, as a whole, have become everything Uh, that really they're doing everything that they're not called to do. You say, what are they called to do? Well, they're called, according to the Word of God, to preach the Word of God and to shepherd the flock. In a nutshell, what a pastor does, what an elder does, at least on a big umbrella picture, is they lead and feed. It's what they do. They lead by shepherding, and they feed by the Word of God. And I would just submit to you that there is an epidemic in our land, and the epidemic is not COVID. The epidemic is not political infighting. The epidemic is not even a moral lapse. There is a famine in the land for the hearing and the obeying of the word of God. Hosea said it this way in 4 6. He said, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. How true that is. And so I turn you here to Ephesians 4 to a word from the living God for us. Now, as you're there in chapter 4, let me just set the big picture briefly. He is giving a series of compelling arguments, is Paul, all wrapped up around the theme of unity. So make sure that you know that everything that I will say, everything that you will read out of this text is put there in 321, that God might be glorified and that God's glory will be revealed when the church is unified. And so he began to walk us through, did Paul, these compelling arguments. The first was a call to unity, and he told us to walk worthy. In other words, the church can't glorify God. When people's life doesn't balance up with what he's taught in Ephesians uh, chapters 1 through 3. And so he told us to walk in a manner worthy that our life would balance out and practice who we are in position. And then he talked about the character of unity. That God is glorified, the church is unified. When the church there is humble, interesting, is gentle, verse 2 is patient. And that is the character. And the character of unity doesn't come in an external form of a show. It comes through internal qualities. And when those men and women in that church and the young adults are walking in that character, the church is going to be unified. Then there was the confession of unity that unity doesn't come at the expense of truth, Paul would say far from it. He said there's one body, there's one spirit. He said there's one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father overall. There was a confession of unity. And then really where we find ourselves now is the contributor Of unity in the church, and of course the contributor is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he's the one that's contributing to the unity of the church. Too often, maybe we put too much importance on our own self, but the truth is, is that Jesus who is contributing to the unity of the church so it's neat not only does he call us to that but he provides the church with all that we need in fact you can't miss it look at verse 7 where it says there but grace was given to each of us that grace is what the Lord Jesus Christ gave to us Look at verse 16. It says, from whom the whole body, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. So he supplies the gifts, and then each person is to work towards their gifting in the church. But I zero in on this in verse 11, where it says, and he gave The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And so you don't want to miss that. He's the contributor of unity. And we looked here at his provision. He gave the gifts. He did this, at least according to verses 8 and 9, when he ascended into glory. And when he died and was raised and ascended, when he went on high, he gave gifts to men And then he explained why he ascended in 9 and 2, that he actually descended in his humiliation to earth. And then really we come to this other component of the contributor of unity, is is this phrase, is he gave proclamation gifts. He gave that to the church. And in the context here, He gave gifted men. In fact, if you look back at verse 8, where it says there that he gave at the end of 8, gifts to men, he had to go in that parentheses to explain that the one who ascended also descended. And then he really comes back in verse 11 to that Psalm 68, where it says that he gave the apostles and the prophets. But he gave gifts, and the gifts were men. Now, certainly, as I walk through this list, we know that women in the New Testament prophesied. It tells us that. It says that in Acts 21, 8 and 9. It specifically says that Philip had four daughters uh, who prophesied. It speaks of that in Acts 2:17 as well. So, yes, there are women who are prophets, but nowhere... In the New Testament do we find a woman who serves as an elder. Nowhere in the New Testament ever in Scripture is a woman listed as a shepherd in an ongoing pastoral role in the New Testament. So these gifts that we bring that Paul here cites, that the Lord Jesus Christ contributes, are gifts given to men And they all have this in common. They communicate the word of God. Whether it's an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, or a shepherd slash pastor teacher, they are communicators of the word of God. And what's a little interesting here is rather than giving uh, people gifts, as it says that to you, that he gave a gift to each of you, here... Christ actually gives gifts to men. He gives them to men. Now you say, well, who are they and what do they do? Let me just take a moment here with you to walk you through this because this is going to frame all that we're to be and to do as a New Testament church. You say he gave these gifts. Now don't forget that he gave these gifts that we might be unified. He gave these gifts ultimately that God would be glorified. Well, who did he give? What are these men? Look at verse 11. We'll just walk through them. He gave, it says there, the apostles. The apostles. Who are the apostles? Well, there's a couple of different categories in the scripture, and we have to be clear here so there's not confusion. That word apostle is apostolos, and apostolos. First, there's a very broad sense to the term. It's a very general sense, sense. In other words, what an apostle was, it was one sent on a mission in a very broad category. That's what the word means. It's a messenger. An apostle, you might even say with a little a, was one who was commissioned. It's very broad. It's very general. In fact, in John thirteen six. In some ways, we're all sent as Christ ambassadors. So it's a sent one, a messenger, and that's not the focus here in this context. But secondly, there's a secondary sense to this word. Some individuals, men, possibly a few women, were called uh, apostles. That would have been Barnabas in Acts 14.4. Silas was called an apostle. Timothy was an apostle in 1 Thessalonians 2.6. James, the half-brother of our Lord in Galatians 1.19, is called an apostle. Andronicus and Junius in Romans 16.7. Apollos in 1 Corinthians 4. Titus in 2 Corinthians 8.23. Epaphroditus. In other words, in a secondary sense, there were men that were called apostles. Now, the thing that's key here in the secondary sense is that they were messengers of the churches. That's 2 Corinthians 8.23. That in some way, they were sent, they were messengers, but they're messengers of the church. And so I call those apostles that I listed, apostles with a little a. But I think you would understand, in this third category, as the one listed in Ephesians 4.11, there is an apostle in a narrow sense. That would be an apostle. We'd call them, at least in the Gospels, the twelve. And the 12 disciples became the 12 apostles. And you remember when Judas took his life in Acts chapter 1, who replaced him? Matthias replaced him as one of the 12, as one of the 12 disciples who became the 12 apostles. And then we know that the apostle Paul was divinely set apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, as one who was untimely born. And so at least we would say apostle, capital A, were those 14 men, okay? And they were foundational to the church. So what Paul is saying here, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God is that he contributed to the unity of this church, and he did so by giving the apostles. Now look over in Ephesians, just one chapter back, a couple chapters back in 220, where it says that, the, that here the household of God at the end of 2:19 was built on the foundation, it says, of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the apostles, and, and here listed the prophets, are foundational in nature. In fact, look over at chapter 3, in verse 5, where he said there, which has not been, he said, made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So, beloved, these apostles, apostles capital A, were foundational. They gave us, if you will, apostolic doctrine. And in their unique role in the New Testament, they established churches. I think you would understand with me that their words became the very breath of God, became the very word of God, became scripture. We call that apostolic doctrine. Now, just let me take you just a step further on this. The 12, maybe with a capital A in this narrow sense, were identified in four unique ways. And I'll be brief here. Number one, unlike that secondary sense where those apostles were messengers of the church, first, these apostles, the 12, in a narrow sense, were commissioned directly by Jesus Christ. He called them. He set them apart. He divinely called them, if you will, the apostles. And we see that. That's why Paul says in Galatians 1 1 that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1 1 that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. These particular men, okay, were set apart and directly and divinely commissioned by Jesus Christ. Secondly, these apostles, in a narrow sense, capital A, were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. In other words, you couldn't be one of these men until you saw physically the resurrected Christ. And of course, he appeared to all of the apostles. You know that in the Gospels. He appeared to over 500 at one time. He appeared to one untimely born called Paul, but they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Thirdly, as I've mentioned briefly, they received revelation from the Holy Spirit. In fact, it said that, did it not, in 3.5? where it says, now has been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In other words, they were the depository vessels, if you will, by which the word of God came to the apostles and to the prophets. And so they laid the foundation of truth. Let me just remind you of a text that we went through in John 14. And I want you to see something here about these uh, second person pronouns, and maybe I'll highlight them. Remember there in the upper room, at the upper room discourse, which was really, it seemed like like for a year, but it wasn't. It says, and he's, the, the audience is his disciples, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, watch this, he will teach you, all things. In other words, he's directly talking to the apostles there. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, this is a, a, a truth and a promise given to these apostles. Look at the next slide. I think it's John 16. When the spirit of truth comes, he's talking about Acts 2. He will guide you. Into all the truth. Not some of the truth, but he's going to guide you unto all the truth. In other words, I think I'm building the argument, we don't need any more truth today. We don't need anybody to stand up and say, I'm an apostle. You don't need anybody to stand up and say, I'm a prophet and I have a word from the Lord. No, there's a promise that he's going to guide you unto all the truth for he, speaking of the Spirit will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you, to to the 12, if you will, the things which are to come. He, speaking of the Spirit, that's his role, will glorify me, for he will take, Jesus said, what is mine, and he's going to declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take, he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. To who? To the 12 apostles, okay? The 12 apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit to reveal all truth. So we don't need more truth. The apostles, by way of the Spirit, by way of Christ, have given us all truth. The scripture is complete. The canon is closed. And so, these apostles, beloved, I need one more thing in here. They're commissioned by Christ. They were secondly eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Thirdly, they gave us revelation. And the fourth mark of an apostle was they were given sign gifts sign gifts. This is what the apostles were given. In fact, it says there, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. And here's what God endowed these apostles with. Signs and wonders and mighty works. There you have it. They were given these Sign gifts. In fact, look on in the book of Acts. It says the same thing. And awe came upon every soul. And there were many wonders and signs were being done. Watch this. Through the apostles. Very clearly. In the next slide, in chapter 5. This must have been an incredible time. Go to the next one. Many signs and wonders... "...were regularly done among the people, very clearly, by the hands or at the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of these rest there joined with them." That was after Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead." Okay? But the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women, so that they even, this is incredible, carried out the sick under the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them, and the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed amazing he gave these apostles miraculous signs and wonders in fact it says in mark chapter 16 verse 20 that the apostles clearly there went forth and preached and the lord was working with them this is interesting He's working with them and confirmed the message or confirmed the word by accompanying signs. They were given those gifts. So watch this. The apostles, I include the prophets there, received revelation, and then the sign gifts authenticated their message. So it's impossible then for anyone to be titled an apostle with a capital A and a prophet today in a primary sense. So why do you say that? Well, we don't see apostolic succession at death. When an apostle died, no one replaced him except for Acts chapter 1 where Judas was Matthias. So these sign gifts passed off the scene. And so the apostles and the prophets, and I'm building that off of Ephesians 2.20, they were foundational. And so they're not repeatable, if you will. And I do add this for you. I think it's fascinating, and maybe this isn't the only argument that these sign gifts have ceased, is that 1 Corinthians that mentioned those sign gifts in the Gospels was written in 54 A.D. Romans was written just four years later, and Paul doesn't mention any of the sign gifts. The book that we're studying, Ephesians, was written nine years after Corinthians in 63, 64 A.D., and there's absolutely no mention of the sign gifts here, And you would actually think he would mention them, especially when you get to chapter 6, which will exposit that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principality and powers. There's no sign gifts in Ephesians mentioned. And then Peter does not mention the sign gifts, and he wrote 12 years later after the book of Corinthians. So you say, Scott, what are you saying? I'm saying according to Ephesians 2.20, these gifts are foundational. There, there are people today, maybe some of you have come from a church or denomination where sometimes they call the leaders apostles. And uh, I, I suppose in a technical sense, if you're saying an apostle as a little a being sent, maybe, okay, but I don't think it's the best usage of the word. I don't think these apostles, as we understand in this primary sense, are for Today, they were foundational. But then there's a second gift. Look there in the list in Ephesians 4.11. And these are somewhat together. But he gave the apostles, and then it says, the prophets, they were foundational. I mentioned that in Ephesians 2.20. These prophets, what is it? Well, they communicated God's truth to the church. Okay. And in an order, it says God is assigned to the church first apostles and second prophets. You say, What did these prophets do? Well, they they were instruments of revelation. Say, so what do you mean? Well, they spoke forth, they spoke out, if you will. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there were two keys to prophecy. Fort and forth telling, okay? Foretelling it means what you would think it would mean that in the first century, somebody who was a prophet was given the ability to predict the future. And often these prophets that are listed as foundational gave spontaneous revelation to the body of Christ. They spoke. Did this prophet. Really like an Old Testament prophet did. That the word of, the, the word of God came to. And they spoke. So there was an aspect of foretelling. In fact you say what way? Well it, to illustrate in Acts 21. There was a prophet. By the name of Agabus. He came down from Judea. And he took Paul's belt very graphic. And he bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind a man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And if you go back this afternoon, read Acts 21, that's exactly what happened. Agabus was a prophet He was foretelling what would happen to Paul if he went into Jerusalem. And what he foretold is exactly what happened. In another passage in Acts 11, uh, there was Agabus again there who predicted a famine. And then there was a famine in the years of Claudius. So there is an aspect of New Testament prophecy that's foretelling. But I would tell you that predominantly, both now, exclusively now, but predominantly in the New Testament, prophecy had a second aspect to it. It was called forth-telling. Not foretelling the future, but forth, F-O, right? R-T-H-T-E-L-L-I-N-G. They were revealing what was already revealed in the apostles' doctrine. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 14:3 that the one who prophesies it just says there speaks for edification for exhortation for consolation. Now, these prophets were on that were were their message that they gave was judged 1 Corinthians 14:37 by the apostles teaching if you will. And the prophets primarily were preachers of apostolic doctrine. Let let me put it this way. Go back to the New Testament church. You're gathered. The Spirit of God comes at Pentecost. And as they went into those worship services, the New Testament church wasn't holding a bound Bible as you are or a Bible that you turned on this morning. They didn't have all of the revelation. It was being written, obviously. It was being circulated, that we know. But so there was still a need, was there not, for revelation to help the early church know what the will of God is. And the prophets, if you will, revealed His will. Now this is crucial for us, because once that foundation was built, the office of an apostle and prophet was closed at the completion of the canon. In other words, the gift ceased to exist, okay? So the gift of apostles and prophets was a sign gift, or I could say it was temporary, and it was transitional. Now, you say, but Scott, two weeks ago, or three weeks, you said that the gift of prophecy exists. I think it does. It doesn't exist as an office, if you will, but it exists as an edifying gift to the church for someone, a man or woman, to make a verbal proclamation to reveal what the apostles' doctrine has already closed out for us. Now, let me explain one thing for you. And there's much to to say here. There is a man that we respect. Certainly, I would quote him from time to time, but he's, he's created something in the area of prophecy out of our background, not from a charismatic background. His name is Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem. He's written an excellent systematic theology, but he argues that the New Testament office of a prophet was different than an Old Testament prophet. His argument goes something like this, that the Old Testament prophet held to the standard that if you prophesied and your prophecy didn't come true, then the punishment was what? Death. Death. I mean, if you prophesied in the Old Testament, and you said this is going to happen, and it didn't happen, they'd take you outside the city and bury you under a pile of rocks. You would be stoned. So it created a little bit of, listen, if you're going to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, you better be right. But what Grudem has done, and others have done, is they affirm that the New Testament prophets are still active but they come up with a different standard for prophets. Sometimes they are accurate, and sometimes they are what? Not. And this view is picking up steam in the church today that there's a secondary level of prophets that you don't have to be right all the time. But, beloved, nowhere does the Scripture say there's an Old Testament standard and a New Testament standard. So what we've ended up in our own day is a bunch of people who are claiming to speak for the Lord. And it's gotten so bad that I think I've mentioned this to you before. Just a while back I was watching YouTube and watching somebody from a past, as a pastor up north speaking on the gift of prophecy and this man, out of his own mouth, said that prophets aren't always right. And I thought, who, where'd you get that from? In the Old Testament, you spoke, and if it was true, you were considered a prophet. And if it was untrue, they condemned you to death. But he went on to say, did this man, that the prophets are like weathermen? And I thought, like weathermen. And out of his own mouth, he said, we hope the prophets today are 51% correct. That's what he said. And all of his people in his church laughed. So in other words, we've ended up with a category today of men and women who supposedly speak revelation. And I think what I'm telling you, and this isn't the end of the the text, these apostles and prophets were foundational. Foundational. And as the word of God became complete, we no longer need the signs and the wonders and the miracles because you've already benefit, you've benefited from the apostles and the prophets. You say, well, how am I benefiting from the apostles and the prophets? You are holding a copy of the very breath of God in your hand this morning, Amen. You don't need somebody to say, hey, the Lord spoke to me, because whenever anybody's told me that, and a number of people I have, I, I sometimes like to open my Bible to the end of the book of Revelation and say, now, tell me what that revelation was, because I am going to write it at the end of the book of Revelation. What was it that God told you? Well, Scott, it's not quite like that. Well, then I said, what is it? And and listen, I'm not saying that everybody who says they have a word from the Lord is claiming that it's revelation from above, but it's become so confusing that we think somehow that the Lord speaks to these special men or special women in special communion, and I'm telling you, you're holding in your hand everything pertaining to life and godliness. You're holding in your hand an authentic word that came by the Holy Spirit to the apostles who wrote the scripture. And until that scripture was complete, the prophets were also giving revelation, sometimes foretelling. But most of the time, foretelling of what the apostles already revealed. So I think these two offices have ceased. And it doesn't mean that we're not affected by them. You're holding in your hand the word of God. Now you say, where are you going with this? Thanks for asking. He gave those gifts to the church. And stop just for a second. Say, why did he give the gifts? So that Grace Church of the Valley would be Unified. He contributed, did the Lord Jesus Christ, that when he ascended into glory, he gave gifts unto the church. He gave gifts unto the church that the church would be glorified, that the church might be unified, and that in his measure, he's also giving gifts today. Go on to the third gift. You'll see it there. And I'm saying that these are for today. Well, you say, Well, Scott, why is this for today? And the apostles and the prophets not. Well, because 2.20, they were foundational. But look at verse 11. He gave the evangelist. Those are, that's a gift today. An evangelist proclaims the good news of salvation. What's interesting here is there's not a lot in the New Testament on this particular word. Maybe I should say this particular noun. In fact, it's mentioned here and only in two other places. Acts 21.8, where it says that Philip was called an evangelist, so he was identified as such. The third place that it's used is 2 Timothy. Paul told Timothy in five to do the work of an evangelist. Now, that's the noun, but this verb is all over, and the verb is to preach the gospel in the New Testament. You say, what did these evangelists do then? What do they do now? Well, they bear witness of Christ. Is it still a gift for the church today? Yes, because only the apostles and the prophets were foundational. These are men today, and I think they function as missionaries. They function as church planners. They establish churches. They proclaim certainly the gospel to unbelievers, and I pray that God would raise up more, would he not, even in our own midst to send out laborers into the harvest. But what's interesting also about the, the idea that comes out of this word is that these evangelists are eager to preach the gospel even in the church. In fact, it says that in Romans 1:15 that he was eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. So who's affected by this gift? I think it's both believers and unbelievers are built through this gift in the church. Now you say, but Scott, all of us are to evangelize. Yes, all of us are to evangelize. But God has actually, through Christ, contributed to the unity of the church by putting his hand on a group of evangelists who go out and establish churches. It would be like saying, all of us are to give, but some have the gift of giving, and they do it with generosity. All of us are to show mercy, but some are uniquely enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal mercy. All of us, I suppose, right, if you're going to make disciples, And teach them to observe all that I commanded. Every single one of you is a teacher. But we also recognize there's gifted men and women who teach the word of God. And so this gift is crucial today. And then it leaves us with this last gift in 4.11. Look there. It says that he gave some as, it says in the ESV, the shepherds and teachers. In the NASB, it says the pastors and the teachers. And if you hear me call it pastor, or if you hear me call it shepherd, it's one and the same. Now, the reason I'm describing here under this, these proclamation gifts is there's four gifts. You're thinking, well, there's five. I think we believe in 411, many scholars, that the shepherds and the teachers are best to see it together that it's describing here one office. In fact, it would be fair, according to the grammar, and I won't take you into all of the, art, the article here, is that you can hyphenate this, that he gave some as shepherd slash teachers, if you will. So here the, the word, the way that it's put in, even in the Greek language, would be able to say that this is one individual with two responsibilities. Now, you say, Scott, what are we talking about? I'm still talking about unity. In other words, Jesus Christ has supplied the local church around the globe with these men that he's called and that he's gifted. He gave foundationally the apostles and the prophets. Today, he's sending evangelists and he's using pastors and teachers. You say, well, Scott, what if I'm not one of those? That's okay, because to each one of us in 4.7, grace was given. It's the proper working of every part, but he gave these men, specifically this last gift, these shepherds and these teachers. The ESV has called it shepherds and not pastors, and probably appropriate because it is the imagery of a shepherd. You say, where, where does that come out of, this word poimen, pastor, ESV, shepherd? Well, it comes out of a rich history in the Old Testament where it was applied to God. Remember Psalm 23, the Lord is my, what? Shepherd. And there in Psalm 23, God is pictured as a shepherd who's caring, who's protecting his people. Then the, from it being applied to God, to being applied to the leaders of the nation of Israel, Jeremiah 3.15, that God's going to give you shepherds after his own heart. Then you begin to watch that word develop. It comes in the New Testament, and it's applied to Christ. You know in John 10 that Jesus is called, but shepherd there's the word but it's also used in Hebrews 13:20 where he is called Jesus the great shepherd in 1 Peter 5:4 Jesus is called the chief shepherd and as he was the good shepherd we know that he knows us intimately we know that in John 10:4 that he leads us We know that in John 10, that as the good shepherd, he protects us from the wolves. We know in John chapter 10, he's the good shepherd because he sacrifices his very own life. But as the word rolled out, it continued to be used of these men who were shepherds and teachers. In fact, the word is used in Acts 20, 28 and 29, where Paul told, interesting, the elders at Ephesus... When he met with them at Miletus, to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. There's the word poimain, to all the flock, to care. That's the word again, poimane, a der- derivative of it, to care of the church of God, which he brought about with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing. And there's the word again, the flock. And so he gives these gifts to the church. Say, what does he give? He gives shepherds. He gives teachers. The shepherds care. They provide protection and intimacy. It involves great skill. But then the text goes on, and we'll look at the second component here, and I think it's even a description of what a shepherd does is there in 4.11, and teachers that the primary function of a pastor is to shepherd the flock, and he does so by teaching. He does so by teaching the word of God. You say, why do we have these people today? Why are they listed here? For unity, okay? The teacher grounds the saints in doctrine, in reproof, in righteousness, The teacher gives an exposition, an application, if you will, to the teaching of Scripture. A teacher, according to God's own heart, is going to reveal the Word of God to you, is going to reveal apostolic doctrine to you. This is the quality and the qualification of an elder. An elder is using the Word of God to the flock, in fact, Paul told Timothy this. He said, "Timothy, guard the deposit that is entrusted to you." In other words, Timothy was in that succession line of Paul, and he said, "I want you to guard it." And obviously, the deposit there entrusted to you is the gospel. Second 2 Thessalonians two fifteen. There, Paul said, "Hold to the tradition in which you were taught." I love that, either by our spoken word or by letter. I love that. You say, well, Scott, what does that mean? I got no gimmicks. I got nothing new to show you. Our church, when we started 13 years ago, is doing the same thing that I'm doing right now. In other words, I have been given a responsibility, and let me be clear that a shepherd and a teacher isn't just me. We have 10 of these. They're called elders. And an elder is to guard the deposit. An elder is to hold to the tradition by which you were taught by us. And Paul says either by our spoken word or by our letter. Colossians 2, 7 says rooted and built in him and established in Definite article, the faith, back to Jude 3, once and for all delivered to the saints, just as you were, what? Taught. In other words, pastors don't need to come up with something new. They need to reveal something old that's already been given to us out of the word of God. In fact, it says on the next slide in the book of Romans, watch this. And I'm just highlighting, I could have spent two messages on this. Thanks be to God, though you were once slaves of sin, you've become obedient from the heart, watch this, to the standard of teaching to which you were commended. What is he talking about? He's talking about apostolic doctrine. Listen, if you're new here with us, we don't have a gimmick here. We don't. I don't have a gimmick here. I've been doing this in training and in pastoral ministry 38 years, and I've got no gimmick to give you. But just a couple of weeks ago, here's what a pastor said two weeks ago in Fresno. He said, quote, and by the way, I'm not trying to be um, negative on him, and, but this is what he said. He said, I am a storytelling type of pastor. I'm quoting who prefers to insert myself into the story. Yee. I'm praying this morning that I would disappear. He's saying I'm a storytelling pastor who prefers to insert myself into the story like a movie or TV show. You say, why does he say that? Because here's what he said. He said next, he said, because how are we supposed to read and comprehend a book 2,000 years ago. I just thought, I was so sad to hear that. He just told the church that this is some ancient book that's not understandable. No, what I'm saying to you out of the word of God is when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Foundational was the apostles and the prophets. Then he also gave the evangelists, and he gave some as pastors and teachers, and why? To teach the authoritative word of God. Now, this is not just me, as I mentioned. It's every elder, okay? It's a plurality of elders. You say, why? For the purpose of unity. Beloved, I just think this, that spiritual leadership, back to the top of the message, has capitulated to the needs of the consumer rather than to, you know, to train and equip the saints for the work of ministry, Pastors and shepherds tenderly yet authoritatively teach the word of God. You say, well, why do they do this? Well, look at verse 12. It's right there. Thanks for asking. He says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's why we have these men. To pour into your life so that the saints can do the work of ministry. Listen, would you pray for us? Would you pray for TMS? Listen, that's not everybody. Not everybody's gonna go to TMS. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for a diverse body. Praise the Lord that he's called some to do this. Praise the Lord that he's gifted all of you who are in Christ. But if I could just finish with this unknown source who speaks directly to the men of TMS as well as maybe even to what the need is in the day and I don't know where this came from but I cite it for you it says here's what this man of God should be doing and what the church should do fling him into his office take the office sign from the door and nail a sign on it study take him off the mailing list lock him up with books and a computer and his bible Slam him down on his knees before text and broken hearts and the flick of the lives of a superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be one man in the community who knows about God. Throw him into the ring. Box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God, it says, and with, all of it, and with God all the night through. Let him come out only when he is bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth forever spouting remarks. Stop his tongue forever tripping lightly over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God and make him exchange the pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Turn off his phone. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Put water in his gas tank. Give him a Bible and tie him to the pulpit. Make him preach the word of the living God. Test him, humiliate him, examine him for his ignorance of divine things. Shame him for his comprehension of finances and batting averages and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist from a choir and form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with this night and day, sir, if we would see Jesus and when at long last he dares assay the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. And if he does not, dismiss him. <laughs> Tell him you can digest TV commentaries and think through the day's superficial problems. Command him not to come back until he's read, reread, written, and rewritten, until he can stand up worn and forlorn and say, Thus saith the Lord. Break him across the board of his ill-gotten popularity. Smack him hard with his own prestige. Corner him with questions about God. Cover him with demands for celestial wisdom and give him no escape until his back is against the wall of the word. And sit down before him and listen to the only word that he has left, God's word. Let him be totally ignorant of deep, of excuse me of down street gossip, but give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with him, sup with it, and come at last to speak, if it backward and forward, and till all he says rings with a truth of eternity. And when he's burned out by the flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him, and when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to man, finally transferred from earth to heaven, then beat him away gently and blow a muted trumpet and lay him down softly. Place a two-edged sword on his coffin and raise a tomb triumphant. For he was a brave soldier of the word and ere he died. He became a man of God. Would you pray for the men at the Master's Seminary? What in the world is the church doing with all the gimmicks, with all the newfangled ideas rather than a pastor, an elder, being a broker of truth and revealing it to the people? That's our prayer. That's what Paul gave us so that we might be unified to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Would you bow your head with me?